Well, good morning. You have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Malachi. We're making our way through the last book of the Old Testament. Um, we're in chapter 2 today. We're going to do verses 1 through 9. The title is The Joy of Godly Leadership. Now, if you are joining us today uh, for the first time, Malachi is an extremely important book in the Old Testament. And just to kind of remind us a little bit of, of how this book starts, Israel is very skeptical of God at this moment. Uh, God has not lived up to Israel's expectations Therefore, they've doubted his love, his goodness, his faithfulness, and Israel's skepticism has led Israel uh, to, to, to wrongly worship God. In fact, you could say they have failed to worship God, and so today in our text, God's going to address the spiritual leaders of that day. Um, and all throughout Scripture, we see that, that leadership matters. When, when there's godly leadership for Israel, the people follow in righteousness and they obey God. When there's ungodly leadership, we see that the people also fall into immorality and they disobey God. So leadership has a profound effect on the people of God. And next week, at the next part of chapter 2, we'll look at the effect that this text has on the people of God. So today, it's, it's the poor leadership that we've seen. In Israel, and next week it'll be the effect that that has had on Israel as a whole. Um, again, all throughout the Bible, we see that leadership matters. In fact, some of Jesus' most harsh and severe words were spoken to the leaders of that day. If you remember, like in Matthew 23, Jesus gives all these woes to the Pharisees, and he calls them hypocrites and blind guides and whitewashed tombs. And so, as we come to our text today, um, Here's what we need to know. Godly leaders are a gift of grace from God to his people. They're meant to benefit the people of God. They're meant to bless the people of God. So the main point is that God appoints leaders to live holy lives for his glory and to bless his people. So that's what we're going to see today. Now, in our text, we're going to see that in two ways. First, we're going to be given a description of the ungodly leaders that are there. And then secondly, we'll be given a description of godly leadership. And so this text is for our good. It's given so that we would understand the role of leadership and, and really pastors and elders today in the church. Um, it's given so that we would know how we're to live. And, and men, I, I want to encourage you as we walk through this text, we are going to be applying this as pastors and elders in the church. And I want to just encourage you and pray that you uh, would just consider praying if God would be leading you into greater leadership within the church. Pray that would God begin moving you into a path of eldership or some type of leading within the local church here at Timberline. So I just want to encourage you to be praying for that. And, and wives, I want to encourage you to pray for your husbands that not only they would just pray that they would consider that, but that you then would be willing and able to support them as they do uh, move that way. And lastly, as we do look at our text, this text is going to move us. So ultimately, we would see how Jesus Christ comes as the one who, who guides us, who shepherds us as our perfect leader. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and stand this morning. We're going to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. It says, And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I've already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offsprings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips." He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. From the lips of a priest, from the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. 
But you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people. And as much as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Let's pray. Father, Father, thank you for this text that we have today. And God, I pray that as we look at it this morning, that you would bring conviction where we need to be convicted. God, you would encourage and build us where we need to be encouraged. Ultimately, Lord, I pray that we, we understand that, Lord, you have called, called men to be leaders within the church, that they would shepherd your people, and that we would speak your truth, and we would represent you and our character and the way we live with all of our actions, with all of our thoughts, and with all of our words. And ultimately, that is only possible because of your spirit that lives within us to strengthen us. And Lord, I pray that, that God, here within our church, you we would just work within the men here and grow us in our love for you and our desire to see your glory made known, that we would see more and more men just step forward, desiring to lead, desiring to help lead more people, more families in their love for you. And ultimately, Lord, I pray that today our eyes fall upon your son, Jesus Christ, as our perfect savior, as our perfect shepherd, the one who will never disappoint us, the one who will never distract us from the truth of your gospel, the one who brings us into perfect unity and enjoyment with you. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Um, so I've broken the sermon just in kind of three parts, and, and you have a very uh, brief outline. Uh, so I had to give the outline to Raymond this week, and I wasn't feeling good. So he, he got the bare bones, so that's what you have. So if you're a note taker, uh, you have more to write today. Um, but we broke it up kind of in three ways. We have the curse. And then the charge, like what are the charges that God's bringing against the priests? And then we're going to have the call. What, what is he calling the godly leaders to live by? So we'll start with the curse. And before we, we look into that, we see um, that we're talking about priests here. So I want to make sure we all understand, we all remember who the priests are. The priests come from the tribe of Levi. Now the Levites are a special people within the people of God. God's people are divided up into 12 tribes. One of them is Levi, and the Levites were chosen by God to specifically minister to him. And from that would be priests that would come out of that. When all the, when all the um, Israelites went into the land, uh, the promised land, in the book of Joshua, they all received an inheritance of land except the Levites. Their inheritance was the priesthood that they would serve and they would minister before God. And so their goal, their role within the people of God is to make sacrifices, is to teach God's word, is to make intercessory prayer. They're to lead God's people into the very worship of God. That's the role that they've been chosen and designated for among all the people. But what we see is that they have failed to do that. In fact, if you go back um, two weeks ago when we were in chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 6, we read that the priests are the ones who have despised God's name. Here in chapter 2, verse 2, we see they have not honored God's name. And remember, when we talk about the name of God, we're talking about the totality of God. So when we say you have not honored the name of God, you've despised every part of God. And so that's what the priests have done. They failed to honor him. They have rejected him. The consequence is that they are going to be cursed. And God says he will send curses on them. Now, the word send does not mean, if you're familiar like with, with like baseball, he's not going to lob an underhand pitch toward them nice and easy so they can hit it. The word send actually means he's going to throw, he's going to hurl these curses at them. So they're coming from God with the very force of God because of what they have done. And, and we see what these curses are. Look at verse 3. He's going to rebuke their offspring. Now this could mean a couple things. Uh, offspring could refer to seed, like, like the seed that was going to go on the ground so their crops will be destroyed. That's possible, but more likely he's actually talking about their very children. So he's saying, I'm going to put an end to your line. I'm going to kill you, and there will be no one to carry on your family name. Next, we see he's going to spread dung on their faces. Uh, so when they would make sacrifices, 
they would, they would take the, the feces and the unclean parts of the animal, and they would take those outside the camp where those would be burned. So now he's not literally saying he's going to take the feces of these animals and spread them on their faces, but he is wanting them to know, as you have despised me, so now you will be despised by me. So God is bringing back the shame now upon the Levites. And then it says they'll be taken away. So just as the unclean parts of the animal are taken outside the camp and they're burned, so what we're understanding is that, the un, is that these priests who are unclean will be removed from their priesthood. Ultimately, these curses will shame and humiliate these priests who have rejected the very glory of God. So don't miss this. God punishes sin. That's what we need to see here. God punishes sin. He doesn't always do it right away, but he punishes sin, and every sin will be punished. And it's either going to be at the cross of Jesus Christ, or if we've rejected God, then we will bear the punishment for our own sin. But God is making it clear by making an example out of these priests that whoever dishonors him will be dishonored. And you might say, well, this sounds pretty harsh. But we have this reference that God is, is referring to this covenant that he has made. Now, we don't actually have a specific covenant in Scripture made to the Levites. So this could refer just to the Mosaic covenant, or possibly there was a covenant that he did make with them and was just not recorded. But what we understand is that there are curses to this covenant, and what we understand in Deuteronomy 28 with the Mosaic Covenant, God said, if you follow my commands and you obey me, you'll experience all these blessings. And he tells them all these things that we do for them. But he says, if you do not follow me, if you reject me, I will pour all these curses upon you. And then Deuteronomy 28, in fact, the majority of that text is all on the curses that God would bring. And so God is saying, look, this isn't harsh. We entered into a covenant you have failed on your part of the covenant, but because you have been faithful, I will not be faithless. I will continue to be faithful, but now you will experience the very curses of the covenant. And so now we're, we're going to look at the charges that God brings on to see exactly what they have done. And so we see about those in verses 8 and 9. There's four charges that God brings against these priests, and they prove that they have failed to honor his name. Look. Number one, they've disobeyed God. It says in verse 8, but you have turned aside from the way. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, and you remember Adam and Eve, they were told you may eat of any of the fruits, of any of the trees, except this one. And what did they do? They departed from the way that God told them to live, and they chose to do what God commanded them not to do. And the very same thing has happened. God has told them, this is how you shall live. This is how you shall experience the very blessings of me. And now Israel said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to make our own way. Sin will always reject the plan and purposes of God. And it always denies God his rule so that now we become king, we become God, and we decide what we want to do. Number two, they distracted the people from following God. If you look also, it says, you have caused many to stumble by your instruction." So the priests are to be like guides, leading people towards God, but now they're leading people away from God. They're like worthless shepherds. The sheep have wandered, and, and they're not going after them. In fact, they're pushing the sheep out into the wilderness. One of the things that we see throughout Scripture is that God will hold the leaders of his people to a high degree of consequence based upon how they have led. And in Matthew 18, this is what Jesus says. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in my name to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So just now think about that. These leaders, they're just supposed to shepherd people to the very presence of God. They're to live a life of worship, drawing people in that they would enjoy God, that they would know God. But rather, 
They're standing in front of the temple, detouring people away from God, out into the wilderness, that they would stumble and fall into the darkness. And God is saying, I will bring these charges against you, and you will suffer greatly. That's why James says in chapter 3, verse 1, that God will judge those who lead his people very carefully. And so that, that's, that's not, it is a warning that we should take as leaders, but it's also a calling to understand this is the importance that God places on godly leadership within the church. Number three, they've disregarded the covenant. It says that they have corrupted God's covenant. We read that in verse eight. You have corrupted the covenant, says the Lord of hosts. Rather than treat it with honor, and say, you know, it doesn't matter. You don't have to live how God wants. You can do however you want. Number four, they demonstrated partiality. We read that at the end of verse nine, where it says, I make you despised and abased before all the people, and as much as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. It's this last charge that shows the heart of these ungodly leaders. Their goal is not to please God, but man. They want to please the rich. They want to please the powerful. Their mindset is, what do I get out of this? How does this benefit me? So their position in leadership is not, how do we do this for the good of the people? But how does this position me for success? What do I get out of this? And throughout the Old and New Testament, God warns us against partiality. Uh, Leviticus 19.15, this is what God says. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. James chapter 2, verse 9, this is what he says. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Partiality is about pleasing man. It's not about pleasing God, and you cannot please both man and God at the same time. And so what we have here is the priests, they're looking at how do we make a name for ourselves? How do we secure our future? God hasn't done what we thought he should do, so we're going to take things in our own hands. So now they're leveraging their position with the powerful to get things that they need. And they've rejected the authority of God's word. They're more interested in their bank accounts. They're more interested in their social media following. They're more interested in, in their positions and what they can accomplish by their plans and their purposes than about how to please God. And this right here is one of the great, great tragedies we see in church all throughout the history of the church is when people come into leadership positions within the church. And I think some of them, they start well. But then at some moments, compromises are made, and they begin to look towards pleasing man more than they look to please God. And we're given a warning here to look out for these people. And I encourage you, I know many of you are military, so there's going to be a day coming when, when you will leave our church, and you will be looking for another church. Um, there are wolves in leadership. We see that all throughout the New Testament. Paul, as he's leaving the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he says, watch out for wolves, they'll rise up from within. The greatest problems that the church faces are not outside the church. Like we get worked up on CNN and Fox News and all the political things that are happening, but the greatest problems we will face are what's going to happen inside this room. And what happens in the conversations that we have with one another, how we build one another. That's why like tonight, Annual meetings are so incredibly important, and there's such a moment that Satan wants to strike, because we're going to talk about money. We're going to talk about these things that we get to try to, as we're discerning God's will, directing his funds towards, and all of a sudden, we can feel as though we're to have more power and more position, and our voice matters more. If we're not careful, unity can become affected by those things. So all throughout the New Testament, all throughout God's word, we see we're to hold on to unity, we're to strive for that, we're to be lookout for wolves. And so one of the things I want to do just as we are, are walking through this text is ask for your prayers for our leaders here in this church, for our elders, for the elder candidates that we have, and for the elders that will, will come into position as we go through the years. Never stop praying for the leaders in the church. Never stop praying. We are not immune to sin by any means whatsoever. We need your prayers just as we pray for you. We need you to pray for us. 
We need to be held accountable. We need to be encouraged. And we see the dangers here is when leadership begins to make, to depart from God's word. Eventually, they move so far away that no longer are they interested in the name of God because they're interested in their name. And we must all stand against that at all times. And so we just want to encourage you, pray for us at the church, pray for our elders, pray for our deacons, pray for our table group leaders. They are amazing leaders within the church. So be praying for leaders that we have. So here we have, we've been this warning. There's curses, and we see the charges. These charges are going to make us cautious when thinking about church. They're going to make us cautious when we start listening to podcasts and sermons online. Rather than just go, oh, there's a lot of followings here. Surely it's good. Rather to look intently, do they tr- speak the truth of God's word? So now what we're going to do is we're going to look, okay, so that's, that's ungodly leadership. And it's all about making a name for themselves. It's about departing from the truth of God's word. So then what does godly leadership look like? And to be clear, we do not have priests today. While there is, in a sense, we do make up the priesthood of believers, Peter will say that, that we are a priesthood in and of ourselves, that we have access to God, and we are called to be people in this world who draw other people into the worship of God. So we do have that role, but we do not have priests, like we saw in the Old Testament, where they make sacrifices. The priesthood in that sense, was fulfilled perfectly by Jesus Christ. And if you were with us as we walked through the book of Hebrews, Jesus comes as the greater high priest who made the great sacrifice of himself so that he would, he would bring to fulfillment all the priesthood and that he would now be our priest who has made the perfect sacrifice so we now have access to God because of what he has done for us. But the priests... And what we see today, the rebuke being given to them is that they did not teach the truth of God's word and they did not live in accord with God's word. And so in that sense, as we look at pastors and elders today, they're very similar to those leadership positions that we had in the, church, or in the Old Testament. And so we're going to apply it that way this morning. And again, I want to encourage you men to be praying as we walk through here, God, would you be calling me at this time to begin taking steps forward into leadership within the church? Don't let pride keep you out of it. Like if you're making excuses right now, well, that's not me, I couldn't do that, I don't know enough, and you start creating, the, that's going to be pride that's going to keep you out as if God's grace would not be sufficient to work within you to grow you, and to prepare you for this position. The way, the way into eldership, to leadership, is not by moving up, but it's by moving down. It's through humility. And so I just want to encourage you, would you begin praying if God would be leading you towards that this morning? My prayer is that as we continue as a church, that we would have many, many men come through our eldership process and many qualified men who would just desire to lead in this church and eventually maybe be taken out of this church that they would plant other churches. So I just want to encourage you to be praying that, men and wives. Uh, Your role is so incredibly important in this because if God calls uh, a husband to be an elder, he calls the wife to support him and encourage him, and he cannot do it without you. Your role is, is indispensable to your husband. And so I want to urge you to be praying. Would you consider praying not only for your husband, but for yourself, that you would support your husband as God works in him to grow him in his faith that he would lead God's people. So let's look at the call. Number one, so I've broken this up into three uh, categories. Number one, godly leaders are devoted to God's glory. So we're going to be devoted to God's, God's glory. Number two, godly leaders are devoted to making God's glory known. And number three, godly leaders are devoted to helping others enjoy God's glory. So we'll look at those one at a time. Godly leaders are devoted to God's glory. In verse 2, the ungodly priest, they fell to honor God's name. But look at verse 5. We see that the covenant God made with Levi was one of fear and awe. Now we've spent time talking about fear in this church before. I think Ozon preached on the fear of God this summer. So we know the fear of God is not actually being afraid of God and running from him in terror like we we watch horror movies. Do you watch horror movies? I do not watch horror movies. They scare me. 
Some of you do that. I have no desire to ever watch one. Um, But rather to rightly fear God is to rightly behold God in all of his glory, in all of his wonder, in all of his beauty, in all of his splendor, and then live in devotion to that. It's to see God rightly and fall down before him and run towards him with all of our affections, with all of our will, with all of our hearts. To fear God is to live a life of worship. I was asked um, a while ago, someone had come to our church and they said, how do you make sure everyone stays happy? And like, I, I, I get that. And you probably have experienced some question. Like, how's your church happy? Why are they so happy? And there's good reasons for that. Um, but he was asking, I think, me as, as, as an elder, and what is the position we take as elders to make sure everyone is happy? And so I said, well, that's, that's not our goal. And I, I mean, I want you to be happy. I mean, don't hear me wrong. Our goal, I mean, I'd love for us to be filled with joy. But our goal is, is not just how we make one another happy. But our goal is, is to please God. And ultimately, if our goal is to please God, that's going to be good for everyone. It might hurt at times, just as like when a, when a, a sculpture sculptor is, is working with, with, with rocks and he's sculpting and he's chipping away at it. It might hurt at times as things are chipped away, but ultimately it's for our good that we would look and become more in the image of Christ and so I told him, I said, well, our, our, our goal is not to please every person. We just want to please God. And as we follow God, we see that he works within the body, that he holds us together. It's when our desire to please man eclipses our desire to please God that we will fall into sin every time. And that's what happens here in Malachi as they're playing favoritism, more concerned, with, again, their, their social, their political positions, how they look, and about how they're living concerning their role with God. I want to I read just a passage. This is Paul in Philippians. Now, Paul in Philippians, he's talking, he's in jail at this moment. And, he, and he's going to talk to them about what he's thinking about being released out of jail. And so this is what he says. Chapter 1, verse 21 and 23 says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh... That means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose? So he's saying, but, but am I going to live in the flesh or, or will I die? Which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Just think about those words. Here's a man who's behold the very glory of God. So when he's looking at the prospect of getting out of jail, he, he's literally saying, look, I... Honestly, if I had my way, I, I, would, I would die. I so long to be with Christ. I so long to be with him and to see him and to enjoy him physically in his presence. I, I would actually rather do that. But I know, then he's going to go on to say, that God is still going to use me here, and so that is good for me to be here, that he would build up the church. But that's to be our desire. I want to encourage you. As Christians, we we see all throughout the New Testament, we have no reason to fear death. Death has been defeated. The sting of death has been removed because we know the moment we close our eyes here, we open them in the presence of God for all of eternity. And there's no joy greater than that. And and I would encourage you, if you're sitting there going, "Uh, I don't know, like, like I get that. But let that be your prayer. As you're studying God's word, God, I I want to desire you more than life. I want to yearn for you more than life. Help me to see your beauty and glory that I would live for you, that you would captivate my every thought, my every action, my every word. Because as I live, I want to live for you because I can't wait for the moment that either you return or I pass away from this earth that I'd be in your presence. Godly leaders are to yearn desire for the very glory of God. Number two, we see that godly leaders, leaders are devoted to making God's glory known. And we're going to see this in three ways. And I came up with three Ps because that's what pastors do. We alliterate. So there's proclaiming, protect, pro- protecting, and portraying the word of God. 
So we make God's word known by proclaiming the word of God, protecting the word of God, and portraying the word of God. Number one, we see we proclaim it. Look at verse six. There's true instruction in his mouth. What's the wrong, what's, what's the fault with the priests? They're giving bad instruction, leading people away from the word of God. They're saying, go, run into the wilderness. You'll be happy there where the wolves are. The problem then and the problem is today is we think that we can improve on God's word. We want to make God's word more palatable, so we soften its commands. We want to make God's word more attractive, so we pick and choose the passages that we preach from. But to change God's word would be like changing someone's autobiography, rewriting all the details of their life. So when you read it, it's not really about them. That's what happens if we change his word. It's no longer about the God of the Bible. We make a different God. And if we begin changing God's word and teaching those changes, we're leading people away from the true God to a false God. That's what the priests were doing. And so what we're called to do is come and to have a love for God's word. And, and if you look at verse 5, God says, My covenant with Levi was one of life and peace. Now when he says, this is what my covenant is, life and peace, he says, this is what my covenant will bring. It's going to bring you life and peace. So as, as the leader, you're going to experience life and peace as you know this. And as you teach it, you're offering life and peace. The benefit, the blessing of the covenant was life and peace. Now, now think about that. If God says the old covenant, which was temporary with the people of Israel, was to bring life and peace, how much more will the new covenant in Jesus Christ now bring life and peace? Does that make sense? If the old covenant, which was temporary, brought life and peace and only did so partially because it was pointing towards Christ, now that we have Jesus Christ, how much more that we offer the true word of the truth of God's word? Let me read two passages. Just think about these. This is what we read in John 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. You get that? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. If you believe in the Son, you have eternal life. So the covenant offers life and peace. The new covenant offers life and peace. If you believe in Jesus, you have life. You have the life of God within you because you have the spirit of Christ now dwelling inside of you. You would have his life now giving energy to all that you do. Now listen to Romans 5 verse 1. This is Paul. He's talking about our salvation. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. So the problem, we looked at this last week, the problem with all humanity is we're not at peace with God because of sin. He has wrath against us because we've been sent, we are sinful. And there's nothing we can do to remove that. Jesus Christ comes, dies on the cross, so we could have eternal life and we'd have peace with him. So no longer are we enemies with God, but now we are, are friends with God. We are family with God. We are sons and daughters of God. Every time we come into God's word, you're entering into life and peace. Do you know that? You're reading about the very life and peace that God gives us in Jesus. Every time you share God's word, every time you give godly counsel to a loved one, to a neighbor, to a friend, you're offering life and peace at that moment. You're saying, this is the words of life. If you follow this, you will know Jesus Christ. You're, if you follow this, you will experience the peace of Christ which surpasses all other understandings. That's the truth of God's word. So then we have to come. Why would we want to alter it in any way? Does that make sense? Like this is life in peace. So as pastors, as elders, what we're called, we're called to love this word. And so I, I encourage you as a church, love this word. Every time you come into it, every morning, every table group, as you sit together with other believers, you're coming in to life and peace right here in Scripture. Every time you're saying, I want to obey this word, you're saying, I want to live out the life in Christ and experience the peace that he has for me. Number two, we're called to protect the word. One of Satan's biggest tactics has always been to attack God's word. 
I mean, his, his, it doesn't change. In one sense, we just need to like realize that it never changes. We see it all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Do you remember some of the first words that Satan speaks? He comes up to, to Eve and he says, did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? From the beginning, he's a liar and he's a deceiver. He twists and he distorts God's word. And we see this all throughout the Bible. All throughout the Old Testament, we see God's, uh, the leaders of the church are being condemned and rebuked when they, when they depart from God's word. And all through the New Testament, Jesus and every New Testament writer warns us, even, even Aaron read about it today as he led us in the Apostles' Creed in Jude, warns us of false teachers coming in the church. Again, we must understand the greatest danger that we face is not outside the church. It's in the church. We must make sure we're coming together around the truth of God's word. So we need to protect it. We need to guard it. We see that here in our text where he says, true instruction was in his mouth. No wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. He turned many from, his, from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge. We guard the truth of God's word. Listen to what 2 Peter says. And he's talking about today. He says, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So again, we have destruction on the godly leaders in the Old Testament, destruction upon godly leaders or ungodly leaders in the New Testament. And he says, and here's the danger, verse 2. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. They will be successful. They will be successful. And if we don't know the truth of God's word, we will depart from it. We have to understand that. And so as, as elders, we're called to specifically spend time in God's word that we would know it, just as a bank teller touches real money all the time, so when they touch false money, it feels different and they stop right then. So we're to immerse ourselves into God's word on a regular basis. So as soon as something pops up and goes, wait a minute, that's not right. We would then quickly come alongside the church and warn, hey, be careful. There's a warning here. There's a heresy that's coming up. There's a false teaching here, which just to be clear, most of what you will see online it's prosperity gospel type preaching, which is all destructive. Now, there is really, really good preaching online, but be very, very careful. So much is prosperity gospel, and it sounds so good and so close, and it just blasphemes the name of God. And it leads people away from trusting in the truth of Christ. Listen to what Paul tells Titus. He's telling Titus, he's saying, look, this is the qualification of an elder. And he says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Why? Why does he need to hold firm to the word? So that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. We need men to protect the purity of God's word. Husbands, that is your role in the house. Do you hear? That is your role in the house, husbands. That's not my role in your house. That's your role. So I, as a husband... You are called to know God's word, to lead your family into God's word, to protect your family. You are called to shepherd your family. So whatever level of reading you have, whatever comprehension you have, that's been given to you by God. Work with what you have. The Spirit will equip you and strengthen you. But you are called to know God's word, to dig deep into God's word, that you would shepherd your wife, that you would shepherd your children, in the truth of God's word. And when heresies and things pop up, you would, you would be alert to those and you'd be able to protect your family that way. And as we come into the church, then we have pastors and elders that lead in that way together. And that's why we're asking, we need more men willing and ready to always step forward to help protect the people of God. And so again, we encourage you, I urge you to be praying about that this morning. Number three, we portray the word. If you look, it says, Levi, he, he walked with me in peace and uprightness. 
He's talking about the character of the priests. Leadership's not just about words, but it's about the way we live life. People have said that the most powerful sermon a pastor will ever preach is his life. It's not actually the words he says, but it's the way he lives every day. I think it's the truth for all of us. That's why James says in chapter 1, verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. We are to hear. We are to speak it. But we're to obey the truth of God's word. So one thing, every time you come into God's word, application, God, what does this tell me about you and how do I live in response to this truth? What does this tell me about you? How do I live in response to this truth? Every time we come into God's word. And sometimes it's going to be really easy, the application. And sometimes you're going to go, I, I don't really don't know what that means uh, in response to this. You're just going to go, okay, I understand that God is powerful or he's big and, and you're going to see these big gospel truths and you might not know how that gets lived out at this moment. That's okay. Sometimes it's going to be very easy. Sometimes it's going to be a little more difficult. But every time we come into God's word, we say, what do I learn about God and how do I live in response to this truth? One of the reasons, especially as pastors, we spend so much time in God's word is because we know that God's word transforms us. When, listen, when you read God's word, it reads you also. Do you get that? If you're reading God's word and it's reading you, it's going to expose things in your life. It's going to build things in your life. It's going to conform you more into the image of Christ. That's why everything that God does to you comes through his word, by the power of his spirit. That's why Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The way you come to faith is through hearing. The way you grow in your faith is through hearing. And that's all by the word of Christ, by the work of the spirit in you. It's always through his word. It's never apart from his word. So I encourage you, we're called to live out the very truths of God's word. Paul, when he's talking to Timothy, he said this. He said, let no one despise you for your youth. He then says, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. I just want you to just think about that. That's, that's 1 Timothy 4.12. Think about what, what would that look like if you today... We're an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. What would that do? Wives, how would that affect the way you love your family, the way you shepherd? Children, how, how would that affect the way you respond to your parents? Fathers, husbands, how does that affect the way you lead in your household? How does that affect the way you work and the way you interact with others? That we would be an example in speech, conduct, love, and faith, and impurity. And lastly, godly leaders are devoted to helping others enjoy the glory of God. What we see is that the priests playing partiality. Now also we're leading people away from the truth of God's word. And now what we see in our text is that people should seek instruction from his mouth. And it says at the end of verse 6, and he turned many from their iniquities. Leaders in, the, leaders in the Old Testament, pastors in the New Testament, were compared to as shepherds. Shepherds are supposed to lead the flock and were to, to guide the flock in protection. We're to, to guide the flock that they would enjoy the blessings that the shepherd gives them. And so ultimately, as we, as, as we look at, at how we lead within the church, when we see those who are stumbling, when we see those who are going into sin, we're called to go after them. That's the role of every single one of us. That's one of the reasons membership matters so much. We're committing to one another. You're committing to, to the body. The body commits to you. So we're looking out for one another. And, and specifically, elders are called just to lead in that example. They were to, to look out, and if one sheep leaves the 99, we go after the one sheep to bring them back. And, and notice, notice this is what James says in chapter 5, verse 19 of his, of his letter. He says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of his sins. What do we save them from? Death. 
could possibly be judgment. We save for their joy. It's for their good. We go after others when they're sinning. This is why uh, I titled it, Godly Leaders Are Devoted to Helping Others Enjoy the Glory of God. Sin promises joy, but it never delivers. And so when we see people being enticed by worldly, finite, temporary sins that will not, enjoy, that will not satisfy, we go after them to bring them back to the very truth of God's word. And that is the role of every believer here, and we need men especially to lead in that position. We're to redirect traffic, literally in front of the gates of hell, towards the presence of God. That's what we do. That's the role that every Christian has within the church, and that's the role as pastors that we have, that we would lead in that way. We direct people away from the gates of hell, that we'd experience the pleasures and the joy of the very glory of God. And so again, man, I encourage you, will you pray that way? Will you pray, God, would you be leading me towards being a greater part of your church, to leading and helping lead other families, the rest of the church, into enjoying your glory and your presence. But ultimately, this text is not made or given to us so that we place greater hope and trust in worldly people. That's not the ultimate reason, and we know that, because my last point that I have is godly leaders are appointed by God. If you look at verse 7, we see that, we read that the, the priests are a messenger of the Lord. And we could say, well, we also know that, that pastors and elders are, are messengers from God. Because that's what we read in Ephesians 4. That's what we read in Acts chapter 20. But this text is meant so that we'd actually put our eyes on Christ. And the reason we know that is because the word messenger is really important. Do you remember what the word Malachi means in this book? Some of you got it. It means messenger. So the word Malachi means messenger, and now he's reminding, you messengers have failed, and when we go to chapter 3, notice what we look. Chapter 3, verse 1, the, Malachi says, behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. So we have a messenger coming to the people of God saying, your messengers are terrible. They've not done the work they were supposed to. There's another messenger who's coming, John the Baptist, and he's going to prepare the way for the messenger of the covenant. He's the one that we need. He's the one who will shepherd us perfectly. He's the one who will never disobey God. He'll never distract us from following the truth of God's word. He will never lead us away. He won't disregard the covenant. He won't demonstrate partiality. He perfectly loves the glory of God. We're told in Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus comes for the very love of God that he would endure the cross so you and I could be saved all for the glory of God. Jesus is the one who perfectly makes God's glory known. Paul is very clear. To see Jesus is to see the very glory of God. That's why, that's why Jesus will even say to his disciples, if you've seen me, who have you seen? The Father. He says, I and the Father are one. So to see Jesus is to see the Father because he's the very glory of God. And Jesus is the one who brings us into relationship with God that we would enjoy him. That's why he died on the cross. And that's why as we take communion here in a moment, that's what we're remembering. That's what we're celebrating. And that's what we look forward to. In Revelation 19, we're given a picture of this heavenly wedding feast where we're told that Jesus will, will gather his bride, the church, and we will come and we will meal with him for all of eternity in a new heavens and new earth, never to be separated from him. So the ultimate goal of this is not so that you would then go, okay, I'm really glad that we have these pastors and these elders. That's the cure for everything that we need. No. It does teach us what we're to look for in God's leadership, and it teaches us there's a blessing and a benefit to godly leadership, but ultimately what Malachi wants us to know, what we all need to know, is that there's a greater shepherd, there's a greater messenger, and his name is Jesus. And there's only life in him and through him. And if you are here and you've not yet trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I would urge you today to believe in him. He is the only one who has come, who has died on the cross, who has risen three days later, defeating sin, defeating death, defeating Satan, proving that if we believe in him, we'll have eternal life. 
that if we believe in him, we have peace with God. So just like Paul said, we can have confidence on that day that we die that we will be in the very presence of God. And so I encourage you, above anything today, let this text direct you to the relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you know Jesus, celebrate that all the more. Rejoice that he is your ultimate leader, your ultimate shepherd, and seek to follow him in all that he calls us to do. We're going to take communion now. And as we do so, as I said a moment ago, this is, we're remembering in this covenant how Jesus came to display the glory of God so that we would be able to enjoy God's glory for all of eternity. And so what I'm going to do, I'm going to pray. Then the ushers are going to come, and they're going to dismiss you row by row, that you'd come and take the elements, go back to your seats, and then we'll take them all together at once. Let me pray. Our Father, our Father, we praise you that you are our ultimate messenger, that you have sent your son Jesus to die on a cross, that we truly could be saved. Our hope is in no man but you. You are the one who has saved us by your grace, that we would have assurance of our salvation, that we would live for you, that we would know you, that we would enjoy your presence for all of eternity. And God, we do thank you that you have given, that you have given elders, you've given pastors as roles within the church to be a blessing to your people, to teach your word. I pray that you will work within the people here at Timberline, work within the men. Lord, I pray that you would urge them right now that they would desire to be used in a greater way by you, for your glory. And God, it has nothing to do with our skills and our abilities and everything to do with your spirit. So God, I pray that each and every man would know that right now. And that God, we would just pray that we would be used by you in however capacity you choose. And Lord, I thank you for the wives and the women who are here. I pray that they would pray for their sons, for their husbands, for the men who are here, that they would lead in a way as you have called them. God, we thank you for the grace that you've given us. Thank you that we can gather here freely this morning and worship you. Lord, we thank you for the children who are downstairs right now learning that you are the one who has formed them and knit them in the womb, that every single person has value because we are made in your image. God, we praise you for that. Lord, as we leave today, Lord, may we go forth in the unity that we have as believers, knowing that ultimately you are the one who leads us and guides us May our conduct, may our speech, may our words, may all that we do and say be done in a way that represents you and glorifies your name. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen.